Well, several weeks ago, we started our study in John 17, and uh, it may just be my thought, but I would say this is one of the, if not, it's the most unique chapter in the Bible. In, in this re- regard, Jesus is, is praying. This is very few of his prayers are recorded, but this one is. It's his longest prayer, and we know that he's up in heaven praying for us today, wondering what in the world he's praying for. This gives us a clue. And so we're digging our way in. And this is my understanding, you know, of this text. Uh, Jesus, remember, he just went through the upper room discourse, okay, the, the last meal they had together. He told them, just got through telling them he was going to leave, that one was going to betray him, that one of them was going to deny him, that they would all run away from him. He just got through doing major teaching about the Holy Spirit who's coming. If you want some texts in Scripture that talk about the Holy Spirit more than any other, John 14, 15, 16, just really huge with that. And then he's on his way to Gethsemane, and we know what's going to happen there. But just before they go out the door, he stops and he prays to his his father. And he prays with an earshot, of course, of the apostles, because he knows that they need to hear what he's going to be saying with, with the father. They need to listen in on this conversation, because if they do, it's going to give them the ability, the perseverance, the strength, the confidence to handle what's coming at them that night, but, but down the road as well. I believe the same for us. The, the, the text preserved by the Holy Spirit, because it's going to, supposed to have the same impact on us as it has on those original apostles to encourage and to strengthen. It'll sharpen our own prayer life, but it will deepen our understanding of the Trinity, of our salvation, of, of, of our God. In the first week, several weeks back, we talked to verses 1 through 5. Jesus prays for himself. He asks one request. He's getting ready, remember, to go to Gethsemane and all the stuff that entails. One request, Father, help my life to glorify you. The next stuff coming down, help me to glorify you. What a request. And our question was, when you pray for yourself, what do you pray for? Then the next week, what we did is we, we started looking at the body of, of the prayer and who he's praying for. Now, we think sometimes, and rightfully so, that Jesus was God's gift to us. But according to the text, John 17, we are God the Father's gift to the Son. And so he, Jesus loves us, and one of the key reasons he loves us is because we are a symbol to him of God the Father's love for him. And so we, we are, are loved. And so the question was, do you love his church? Because if you don't really love his church in the same manner he does, we won't pray for it. And then last time we talked on this, we kind of got into the guts of the, the prayer. And Jesus only has three requests that he makes for his church. And the first one, we talked about it last time, was protection from the evil one. He knows Satan's had all of his attention on Jesus, attacks on Jesus. As soon as Jesus leaves, hell's turning their attention to his people. It's going to get messy, and Jesus pays for protection. This is talking, this eternal security is what we're talking about. The big deal. Second request we're going to talk about in just a moment, but let me tell you, in case I forget, next week we're going to wrap this thing up with the third request, and it's got kind of a startling, E.E. Cummings surprise kind of ending, and so let me encourage you to be here n- next week. Okay, the uh, uh, second request. Well, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to John 17, and the second request he makes is in verse 17 of chapter 17, and this is it. 
sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You know, you're thinking, okay, if he's going to be, I could probably come up with a better prayer list, right? Then what, I don't even know exactly what this means. Let's, let's unpack this for just a minute. The, the, the truth thing is pretty substantial. Because in the next chapter, Jesus is going to be talking with Pilate. Just, just, just think for this a minute. Because the whole idea of truth is challenged, huge in our world. Jesus is talking with Pilate. And he's on trial, and and they're talking, and Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so Pilate said to him, so you are a king, right? And Jesus answered, you say I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And he had said, after he, after he said this, he went back outside. I'm, I'm focusing on that word after. And I'm going, Pilate, for crying out loud, you just asked one of the biggest questions in the universe. What is truth? And you just asked it to the second person of the Trinity, God, the only person who can really answer that. And you leave before he answers the question? Are you serious? If he would just, I, I think, in this world, a lot of people, what is truth? They're not really interested in hearing the answer to that question. They would stop and listen to what Jesus says, a whole different deal. Now, in our culture, you know, it's not easy to talk about the truth, capital T, big truth, universal, applies to everybody, truth. That's not a popular thing. One of the uh, isms that we wrestle with is uh Relativism, it says that there is no truth, capital T for everybody. I was listening uh, this past week to a uh, astrophysicist, you know, brushing up on all my astrophysicist type of stuff. And the guy says this, he says, all that is, is what can be proved by science. Everything else is opinion. And that, that's, that's the mindset that there is no big T truth. It's, it's just not there. Everything is subjective. Everything is, is relative, right? Um, and of course, we know that that's a, a self-defeating statement. You can't say that. If you say there is no truth, then that means that statement that you just said, there is no truth, is not true, which means there is truth. So, so you, you can't say that. Even somebody who holds to that believes that there is at least one truth, and that is that there is no, no truth. Um, relativism, uh, its cousin is something we call pluralism. And I kind of take the relativism just another step. And they say, there is no uh, big capital truth, just opinion and... All opinions are equally valid. There's nobody's truth opinion more valid or invalid than anybody else's, just so we all understand this. And you'll get shot down huge in this world, in this culture, if you say otherwise. But we still all know this is incredibly bogus. The law of contradiction says you cannot, you cannot be A and non-A in the same way at the same time. A woman cannot be pregnant and not pregnant at the same time. And it's just, you can't do that. That's the law of contradiction. Pluralism crashes there. There are some philosophers who say, oh yes, you can. I read this philosopher this week who said, uh, 
What he would like to do with all those philosophers who deny the law of contradiction is he would like to have them all beaten and burned until they admit that being beaten and burned is not the same thing as not being beaten and burned. That's the law of contradiction does, does, does work. Now, the deal with this actually, you know, is, is, it leads to in our culture this tolerance issue where they misunderstand and they, they get confused this idea that everybody is valuable regardless to what they believe. They get that confused with what everyone believes is equally valuable. They, they, they get that, they get that mixed up. And if you say otherwise, of course, the objections is, well, that's awful narrow. That's pretty narrow minded. Now you're teaching math in school. Two plus two equals four. Can you imagine? I think it equals nine. Pretty narrow to say it equals four. Well, you know, it, 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 it does. It's two plus, it equals four. Whether that's narrow or not, that's truth is truth. And some would say, well, that's, it's arrogant to think that you have figured out the truth. And back, back to the math class, I don't know if the math teacher is arrogant, condescending to all the people who don't understand 2 plus 2 equals 4. When he says this, I don't know what his state of mind is, but that's almost irrelevant, isn't it? Because 2 plus 2 equals 4. You say, well, that's awful exclusive. You mean to tell me everybody else's answers? Six and nine and fifty, that's all wrong, right? But only four is right? Yeah, that, that's right. If there's a truth that excludes all others, it, it just, it just does. And some would say, well, then that's awful offensive. That's divisive. You're just hate mongering. You, you got whatever phobia. You just, you just hate mongering on everybody but your, yourself. It's all about sincerity, right? You just believe whatever as long as you're sincere. And we know, we know, we know, we know. You can't say this too loud without getting blasted. But if I've got a glass of Drano, but I think it's lemonade, and I drink it, I'm sincere. I sincerely think it's lemonade. There's going to be some consequences. There just will be. I was uh, in the street Chicago years ago, and I came across this Hindu gentleman who was passing out pamphlets and uh, proselytizing. So I engaged him in conversation and he said, Oh, great. You're a Christian. You believe in Jesus. You worship Jesus. I said, Yes, I do. He said, Me too. I worship Jesus as well. See, we worship alike. And I said, I don't think we worship the same Jesus. He says, Oh, yes, yes, we do. You would believe Jesus is God. I believe Jesus is God. We worship Jesus alike. Yes, we do. And I said, Well, hang on. My Jesus, when I worship, said that I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. I worship a Jesus who said, unless you believe that I am he, you shall surely die in your sins. I worship a Jesus where the Bible says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, I worship a Jesus who's second person of Trinity God, one God. All others are false gods. That's who I worship. Is that the same Jesus you worship? And of course not. Hinduism, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of, of gods. And at that point, the gentleman turned uh, away from me. I don't know if he's ticked off or what, but but, but still that understanding that that Everything is okay, whatever you believe. We're, we're all one big happy family. Uh, leaders of faiths realize that that's a bogus. It doesn't matter what faith you're into. They realize that that's a bogus claim. 
that can't be so. So, so Jesus, don't miss what he's, can't miss what he's saying here. Real important. He's saying, Father, right? Your word is the truth. The truth. This is it. That's big. And what does he want the truth to do? Sanctify them, right? 1717. Sanctify them in the truth. He said, well, okay, what does sanctify mean? It's kind of a, it's kind of a churchy word, right? Sanctify. What does, what does that mean? I think verse 11 helps us. It says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. You see, kind of holy is in italics, right? So you kind of think, okay, that's related. Is it related to sanctify? Yes, it is. Very observant. All right, next screen. Look at this for a second. When he says holy Father, holy in Greek is the word hagia. Okay, when it, when, it, when it's used as an adjective, hagia. Sanctify. Next same word you get in the Greek. It's hagiasin, which is 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 it's 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 the the verb. Of Hagia. Now it comes from the noun, which is holy Hagias. Now do you see this? They're all the exact same word. The, the endings are different because just Greek, that's what determines whether it's a noun or a verb or whatever else. But it's the exact same word. So, so be with me for a second. This is important because Jesus isn't flippant with his words. He calls and dresses the Father as holy for very specific, re- very intentional reason. Throughout this, this Prayer, he's making a great distinction, isn't he, between the world and non-world. They were in the world, they're not in the world. I'm not in the world. You called them out of the world. They were in the world, but they're not in the world anymore. Okay, they're, they're, he's drawing a big distinction. Holy means other. It means set apart. It means different than. And so Jesus is saying, holy father, you are not like this world. Your values are not like this world. Your your priorities are not like this world. Your kingdom is not of this world. Who you are, you're thinking, everything, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your thoughts, they're not of this world. It's different, set apart. And these folk that you've given me, you've called out of the world. you called them out of the world, but the world is still kind of in them. And they're they're not in the world anymore, but they were raised in the world. And so their thinking is of this world. And their dreams can sometimes be of the world. And their passions are of the world. And their understanding of the world. And so, Holy Father, what I want you to do is holyize them. That's the word. I want you to set them apart. I want you to make them like you. The picture is this. You Just think with me for a second. You grew up in a very... Urban, very poverty, very busted, broken, dysfunctional, messed up home. Okay, I mean, you grew up. Uh, your your pa wasn't around. Your mom worked several jobs. Had a different guy in every night. Your older brother was in the gangs. All the mess that would come with that. Your older sister uh, strung out on, on drugs. You're growing up in the midst of all of this. It's just survival. I would think you would say with me, would you not, that that person's perspective. It's going to be very unhealthy, right? It's going to be very broken. It's going to be very twisted, messed up. They're going to have a wrong view of, messed up view of, of sex and of relationships and of friends and, and of family. They're just, it's just no fault in their own. They were just in there. They just grew up in the world. That's just what they heard. And then this is where you're at. And then one day, a very wealthy, very uh, healthy, very royal family adopts you out of that mess, just adopts you. And they've got you dressed up 
like your royalty. And they've got you living like your royalty. But in your head, how are you thinking? Well, you can't just turn this off and suddenly, I mean, this is how you grew up. This is how you understand life. This is your filter for life. It's going to take a while to get your mind in a different place, to get your understanding of all these things. This understanding is broken to get it fixed. You can need a, a mentor. This is our mentor because that's our story. We grew up over here with all of the whatever. And he adopted us into his family. But our, our thinking, our understanding of life, it's not, it's broken. It's broken. I need another meaning of this word, sanctify, set apart. The second meaning is, is to equip. This is fascinating. And that's, that's, when you think about this, um, Jesus didn't just call these guys and, and save them and say, okay, I'm going to take you to heaven one day. Just kind of deal with life and let's wait until that time happens. He's got a job for them. And he wants to equip them for their job. I've done a handful of weddings, and I think every single wedding I've ever done, I always say, say this, that that spouse, whoever I'm talking to, the husband or the wife, um, you have no idea how to be the husband that your wife needs. You might think you do. You have no idea. But God knows, because he knows what's running through her mind and her heart. He knows how he created her. He knows her deficiencies and her strengths. He knows what she needs, and he knows who he needs you to be. And so the greatest thing you can do for her is be here and get his mind, because he will equip you to do this job. This is a task. This is a job. He will he will help you to be the husband or the wife that he wants you to be. Uh, God has given us a job as parents. If you have kids at home, if you don't, if they're not home, I'm realizing you, you're still you're still a parent, right? Now you don't know how to parent. You might think you do, and if you ask your kids and they're honest with you, they'll be they'll be real clear on this one, right? No, you don't have a clue. You're not sure how to how to parent as they need, but God knows. What he has for those kids, he knows who he wants them to be. He knows their weaknesses and strengths, and he knows what you need to be as a parent. And you can go try this on your own, but you don't have a clue. We need to be equipped. And so as we're equipped, we're able to... So if, you, if, you, if you're not being equipped, you can probably do an okay job in some instances, but your kids will never be what they could have been, what God had called them to be, nor will you be. Now, this goes for like being a best friend. This goes for being a boss and a good employee. I mean, we don't know how. And here's, here's the problem. As we've gone through life, we've been scarred by our family of origin, by stuff that has happened to us, by, by people. I mean, I've got things that I've still ring through my head that people have said to me when I was a little boy. We've been scarred by this. We live out of the scars. We have been misinformed. I mean, well-meaning friends, well-meaning teachers, some of them maybe not so well-meaning, some exploitive, self-oriented folk, some mean evil. We've been, we've been hearing messages about from the media and and music and videos that we checked out. Not all, of course, but some of them anti-God messages. We've been misinformed. And guess what? We make our decisions out of that pool of information. That's what makes us. 
Well, we, we've discerned improperly. So, no, no, don't jump on this one because I know we all think we got a gift of discernment. We can all nail everything and, and I can understand things. Other people can't, but I, we've got like 10 pieces of this thousand piece puzzle and we are sure we understand the picture. We've connected the dots, and there's only three dots that we connected. We don't need to connect all 75 because we know what the picture is. And, we, and our hearts sometimes call it wrong. It just does. And we live out of that quagmire. We've been hell-bent at times. We've been bent by hell sometimes, and we live our life, our relationships out of that. We can. Be, it's like we grew up in a carnival house of mirrors where all the mirrors are kind of, it's just distorted view of you, distorted view of reality, distorted view of everybody else, and we think this is normal. When Jesus says sanctify, he's saying straighten out their perspective. Help them to see you as you really are. Help them to see themselves and life and pleasure and work and sex and money. and life. Help them to see life as it really is because we all have a distorted perspective. And so Jesus' word of sanctify them, straighten them out, equip them, holy eyes them, help them to see life the way you do. I, do. This, I think this is so cool. First prayer request, protect them. And now he's taking it a whole step further. Not only that, make them like you. Don't just, don't just keep them there, protect them, do that. But now make them like you. We can be made like God. This is amazing. We're not, we're never going to be God. That, but, but, but his thoughts, as we decrease and he increases, ah, amazing. Now, how does the word sanctify? How does it do those things? In this text, Okay, we're going to stay in the text. There's, there's at least three things. First one, you see in verses, I think verse six, verse six and seven. We'll start with six. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, notice the kept. Kind of circle that if you've got your Bible. I don't know if you can highlight that on your device. Kept. He's going to use that word again in a minute when he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. When he says, keep them kept, it means to treasure. It means to protect. It means to guard. It's not just listening. It's, it's hanging on to embracing. They kept your word. They weren't just listening to it. They were doing it, right? They were, they were committed to it. And now what's the result of being committed to the word? Look at this next verse. Now. Okay, circle the now. Now. They kept your word. Now. Because they kept it. They know. That everything you have given me is from you. You see, see, we, we think sometimes that I'm going to get my faith in line. See, I don't really have a thirst for the word today. I wish I did. I just, but I don't. But I, I'm just being honest. Right? But see, one day I'll get, I don't know if it's like a zap or something. I'll hear a song or something's going to happen. I don't even know exactly what, but then I'll be, I'll be in the word. See, and then when I'm in the word, oh, then yeah, I'll be growing when my faith gets solid. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The thing that gives you the thirst, the thing that gives you the faith is the word. You, you, you commit to it. You, you keep it. You, you embrace it. It becomes part of who you are. And then you know what happens? Then you know. Then you understand. In case we miss this, very next verse, same sort of thing. It says, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. That's that invited them in, kept them. And I have come and have, and they have come to know in truth. 
See, they receive them in, and then they have come to know in truth that I came from you. Didn't they already believe that? And they believe that you sent me. Didn't they already believe that? They, 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 their faith was bolstered. Their, their uh, faith evolved. Their light became brighter. Their confidence in God became more unshakable, I, I guess. Their, their uh, understanding of who he is and his kingdom grew Exponentially, even though when they committed to the word, they didn't understand this. You see this? One of the ways the word sanctifies us is we commit to it. It, it helps us to, to understand and know and grow in our faith. You want big faith? There's only one way. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. It's the second thing that uh, the word way it sanctifies us in this text anyway. And that's in verse 13. It says, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. A second uh, sanctifying work of the word, don't miss this, this is real important, is joy. Now, uh, John 15, he says the same sort of thing. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that, these things, what things? The thing, stay in my commandments. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, maxed out, overflowing. Now, sometimes it's important because we think joy and happiness, you know, what is that difference? We just need to know happiness is circumstantial. Happiness is not a bad thing, it's, it's, but it's circumstantial. I go to the doctor and he says, you're doing phenomenal, thumbs up, I'm happy. I go to the doctor and he doesn't say that, I'm sad. My kids are, are doing fantastic, I'm happy. My kids aren't doing fantastic, I'm sad. Life is that way. We are happy, we are sad, we're happy, we're sad. It's circumstantial. Joy, whole different thing. Joy is just a whole, it's not like happiness on steroids. It's not like lots and lots and lots of happiness. Just a whole different thing. And, and this is what happened. Notice, my joy would be, what is Jesus' joy? Joy is when you, when you see God's work being done, that sense of exuberance and exhilaration and, and uh, security, and, and that's joy. And so do you see, unless you are following after Christ, you can never understand joy like that. Best you got in this world is the happiness thing. And there's going to be times that are good. Doesn't matter. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. Doesn't matter who you are. And there's going to be times when it's bad. And if happiness is all you've got, good, go for it. But you're going to hit some stretches sometimes where it's just going to be difficult, a mess. Joy, on the other hand, and this is how this works. I hope I'm not, I know I'm not saying this clearly, but follow me. As we're in his word and we, we understand what he's doing and where he's going, and we kind of join the team, and we see him working in a, there becomes a, an, an exuberance that loosens our grip on things of the world. Let me give you an example. You're an NFL player, Super Bowl, Super Bowl Sunday, you're, you're playing, and it's close, and you're coming uh, down to the wire, and you're pressing on the, on the opponent, and, and you know what? It's, you played all game. 
And you've got, you've got your, your hammy that's been pulled is acting up, and so that's hurting. And this linebacker guy stomped on your arm, and it's kind of bleeding, and it's all sore. And you think it might be, it's broken, but you, and, and you're just winded, but you know what? You're out there, you're not even thinking about that. Try to pull that guy out of the game. Oh, he's not coming. He, it's not about him. It's not about how he feels. It's not about anything. He's gonna give everything. And then at the end, when they win, he's oh, still not thinking about the, the, the hurt, the pain. It's, it's nothing like that. When we understand what he's doing and we get on his team and we live our lives for that and we see his kingdom coming and we see what he's doing through us, all of the useless earth stuff, the world stuff that we've been living for, we, we, we lose. You, just, you see this? As we get in here, we understand who he is and we apply our life accordingly. There's, there's a joy. Once you've tasted that, the world stuff just is not attractive at all. It's got a sanctifying work. Now there's one other way that the word, this text sanctifies us. Very next verse, verse 14. He says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. Because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The sanctifying work of the word brings us to persecution. And no sane person in their right—I mean, no sane person in their right mind, right? No, no, no sane person is going to be seeking after persecution. Please don't seek after persecution. If you're living godly in Christ Jesus, it will find you. It will come. But here's the deal. You're finding his mind and his heart and his plan and his priorities, and they're not at all what you grew up with in the world. And so you're you're you're, you're not dissing these folk. You're not. You might be you're loving them tremendously, but your lifestyle is radically shifting. And and these folk, the world, are just not real pleased with that. And so you will face persecution. And you know how this works. You've been there where suddenly the persecution is in your face, and it's 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 you. And you know, so you, you have to decide right there. You've always said you believe this, but you know good and well, if you choose him, this is going to cost you. It may cost you promotions. It may cost you further advancement. It may cost you your family, your reputation, it, maybe your life. And so you're right there, and you choose him anyway. What, what happens? When you've come through that fire, your grasp on worldly stuff is done. You are humble. You are much more for him. You are sanctified. You are holyized. This is what God's word does. Now, right about then, I, I know you all are astute, astute people, and so you're probably saying, okay, hang on, I can foresee the application already. Let's be in the Bible. Everyone be in the Bible. Yeah, that's, that's, we've heard this all the time, right? Okay. Three, three issues that I know kick into our minds when this happens. First issue is, is you, you know what? I grew up in the church. I've heard all these stories a million times. I've read the Bible a couple of times, a gazillion Bible studies. I know this stuff. It is boring to me. I know it. Therefore, I don't need to be more. And this, this is for like new people, right? It's not for, not for me. Let me just, let me just, and we could have a lesson on this one. But just right now, what I'm doing, my personal time alone with the Lord, quiet time, you might call it. I'm going through Second Chronicles. I've been through Second Chronicles quiet time style. That means just, you know, portion of, it takes a long time to get through, portion of a chapter at a time, uh, three times. This is, this is my fourth time doing this, going through it. I've read Second Chronicles at least, conservatively, at least 25 times. And you know what? As I'm going through it now, I'm going, oh, 
I never saw this before. I've even got this verse underlined and I never saw this before. Be- because last time I went through it, I was, I was in a whole different place. And I had different things going on in my life. And maybe I wasn't ready or prepared. or But now I'm going through this. A whole different, my, everything else. And God's got new things to teach me. And you know what? Next time I go through Second Chronicles, I'll be a different person. And there'll be other things he will teach me. Scripture is not boring. Another argument we use, we sometimes say, you know what? It's too mm, old. Bible is too old. I look at the culture they got back then, and they were sheep herders, and I lived in tents and stuff, and I, I read, you know, some of these genealogies. I feel like I'm reading a honking Jewish phone book, and I'm just, I just, you know, it's just, I'm stuck on this backtrack thing. I'm going the wrong way on this escalator, and I'm talking about cubits and cubits and cubits and cubits. It's, it's too, with culture, it's where they lived and where I lived, two different worlds. It's, it's too old. Therefore, it's just not relevant to my life. And here's the deal. Of course, when he gave the word to these people, he had to write it in a culture that they could understand. But behind every single text of scripture, there is a biblical principle that's just as applicable and just as needed for your life as it was for theirs. Every single text. Sometimes we say, well, you know what? I've tried to read the Bible. And I get to this, you know, it's a seven-headed dragon thing with eyes all over it. You know, it's just... I, I, I. it's too complex, you know? I mean, there's some cool stories, but it's just confusing. You know, you're doomed to Moab. I don't know who Moab is, but, you know, they're going to be in all kinds of trouble. So I, I'm just not sure what this is about, and I just want to... There's portions of the Bible I don't understand. I'm not with. Now, in John chapter 6, really cool. Jesus has just told the people, he said, uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood... You have no part with me. And you got to keep in mind, these folk are all Jewish, right? They don't even eat pork, more or less eat someone else's flesh. And so they're going, whoa, whoa this is, what's this about? And then Jesus says this, John chapter 6. He says, when many of his disciples heard it, they heard what he's talking about, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He's saying, yeah, Lord, that thing you just said about the flesh and blood, I don't have a clue what that's about. You know, that nauseates me a little bit. It, it, it goes against all my categories. It goes against some of my other understandings of your word. I don't have a clue what that's about. But I know that the lips that just uttered that also called my name. And also gave me forgiveness and grace. And so even though I don't understand this, and it's, it's relevant, boring, confusing, even though I'm with you. And so I don't understand, but I'm, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to embrace it even though I don't understand. Several years ago, uh, I mean, we're talking a long time ago. I think Nathan was probably six. He came to Teresa and myself, and he said, I want to play the violin. I played trumpet, and Teresa played keyboard. So we said, ah, sure, until we checked into the cost of a violin. You know, it's like, oh, are you serious? So we got a a Kmart version, but still, you got to mortgage the house to get this thing. And then after you spend a gazillion dollars for the violin, you got to spend 
You can spend thousands of dollars for the stick. You know that you're going to spend thousands of dollars for the stupid stick. I'm thinking, doesn't it come? It's useless without the stick. Oh no, you got to. And then they try to hit you up for the case. And you're going to are you serious? You got to. Yeah, you got to get the case too. I, I'm not bitter about this, but anyway. So, so we get it for him, okay? And then you got to get the lessons. And you know how all this goes. First, I think it was his first recital. He gets up there, and he had a, a stick, but it wasn't the one with the horse here on it. I don't think they played a single note. They just kind of did this the whole time. It's a glorious concert, you know, it's a great, wonderful. <laughs> Next recital, or one shortly after that, I, I you know, he gets up there and he plays the happy farmer. Nathan plays the happy farmer and 57 other beginner violin students badly played the happy farmer. Happy farmer. It's like a misnomer. So they should call it the depressed farmer or something. It's really awful. It's like, are you serious? So for years, you know, weeks, so this goes on. We're, we're listening to this, trying to practice this thing at home. Oh, my goodness. We're taking him, driving him to lessons and paying a lot of money for the lessons and, and, and going to the music store and getting more horse hair on his very expensive stick. And so we were doing all of these things, right? And weeks turn into months, turn into years. And, and I'm thinking, that's not getting a whole lot better. Um, <laughs> but I remember, I don't know when it was. It was... It was uh, Ten years later, I don't, I don't know. I'm at one of his recitals. He stands up. Um, I'm, I'm going to cry. <laughs> no, I'll be okay. Uh, he pulls out his violin, and no music, and he plays some song, some piece by Paganini. Very difficult piece, and it sounded halfway decent. And I'm, saying, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, remembering the happy farmer days, going, I am so, so grateful that we didn't stop at the happy farmer. And how many people have? I'm not going to ask you for hands. How many of us try to take piano lessons and we stop? Because, you know what, this is too complex. And because for crying out loud, I want to play Tchaikovsky and Beethoven, whatever else. And I don't want to keep playing these stupid scales and appreggios. And, and what is that about? And I'm not, I guess I'm not musical. I guess I can't do this. And so we just, we just quit. Now here's the deal for us. Some of us were happy farmers in our Bible reading. And, and, and we get upset because we hear other folk who are playing Paganini stuff, and they're, they're getting insights, and we're going, where are they getting that from? And they're understanding pieces of Scripture. We're going, what are they understanding? I have no clue. And so we're thinking, you know what? I'm just going to quit. And maybe we'll be in it, and we'll try to try to read, you know, the Bible, and we'll get like six months into this thing, and then we'll go, you know what, just, we'll just quit. Because I can't get past the happy farmer, you know what I mean? It's My, my understanding of Scripture is never going to be... But here's the deal. If you embrace God's word and if you persevere, we're not talking dabbling the foot in the pond, right? We're talking jumping in, immersing yourself. They kept my word. They received, you know, you immerse yourself in great portions of God's word consistently, regularly. And get this, with this prayer, Lord, would you sanctify me by your word? Would you equip me? Would you help me to see this world through your eyes? Would you holy eyes me? Please. You got to, this is the coolest thing about this prayer is it's a prayer. Jesus is talking to the father. He's not saying, Lord, help them figure out how to sanctify themselves. He knows we'd be a big mess. He says, he says, father, would you sanctify them? They can't do it on their own. But the way the father does this is through his word. And so I just promise you, I promise if you were 10 years, you were to immerse yourself and stick with it and, and, and pray through and be consistent. You know what? He will sanctify you. It's not an if. He will. And you'll taste that joy 
And, and, and you'll, 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 you'll discard the things of the world. They won't even taste good anymore. And you'll probably go through some persecution, but it will have a purifying effect on you. It won't mess up your joy at all. If anything, it will pour fuel on, on the joy. And so here's the deal for each of us. Multiple years from tonight, you can either with your Bible be happy farmer, or you can be Paganini style. But the only thing that makes a difference, the only thing that makes a difference is between now and then, it's what you do with it. If you embrace it, you keep it, you commit to it. So Jesus' prayers are always answered. It will. He will sanctify it. Would you pray with me? Lord, I am grateful this morning for those people who mentored and taught me, who embraced your word, who who committed themselves to it, knowing that it was your word. Well, not accepting it as your word, not as the word word of of man. And because of that, you grew them and you filled them and they were able to to share and communicate with myself, with, with us. And so, God, I would pray that you would equip us for the task you have for us, that we wouldn't miss it. God, that you would uh, holyize us, help us to think your thoughts, Lord, as much as mortal people can, to see this world, ourselves, life through your eyes, that we might do it, not based on the world's manual, but on, on yours. I pray that that would be so. God, I pray, too, that uh, you would, just as we go, that that you would remind us when life gets busy and by your spirit, would you pull us back to your word? Father, as we take up this offering too, would the monies that we collect go to the pure advancement of your word here among our people and elsewhere in Christ's name. Amen.